needs a savior. Therefore, she cannot be and should not be called the queen of heaven or the co-redemptrix or the, the one who aids in our salvation. There are various names given to Mary by Catholics which are unfounded. She is not a co-redeemer with Christ. She is not the queen of heaven. In fact, from Jeremiah 7 and 44, the queen of heaven is a designation for an idol, for the Asherah. So we should not exalt Mary beyond her due place. Yes, she is holy. Yes, she was chosen, a chosen vessel, a godly vessel. But she was not in any way a savior or a redeemer for us. Now, verse 48. Now, why is it that this has happened? Or how has it happened? Verse 48. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. God has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She regards herself as a bond slave, as a bond slave of the Lord, and she was in a humble, lowly condition. She was nobody. She was a no-name. She lived in a small place, in a place of no recognition, no wealth, nothing like that. Yes, she was of the lineage of David, but who cared? Nobody cared about that. Even that fact nobody cared about because she was a nobody. She didn't live in Jerusalem. She was not in the court. She was not one of the, the officials in the court or even the queen. She was nothing like that. She was in her, her lowly, humble condition. But God brought her up. God is the one who had regard. So this shows, verse 48, she shows by the statement that she knows that she is fully and completely dependent upon the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God to act first and bring her up from her condition. She could not do so. She had no ability to do so, to make herself into something when she was nothing. God had to make someone who was nothing into something, and it happened by His grace. And because of this, not because she is great, but because of what God did in her, all generations will count me blessed. All generations who understand this and, who understand and believe this, know this, will call her blessed. Blessed not because of who she is in herself, but because of what God has done in her. Now, this is the way we ought to understand blessing and gifts and graces that people have. When somebody is endowed with amazing abilities, when somebody is a prodigy, whether it's naturally or spiritually speaking, in both cases, the prodigy's abilities come from God. One who has amazing natural abilities and one who has amazing spiritual abilities, spiritual gifts, they all come from God. And this is why she is blessed. She's blessed because she knows it has come from God. And when we recognize her, we recognize her in her due place, not diminishing her recognition and not exalting it beyond due ability and due legitimacy. We don't exalt her more than we should, like some false religions and, and parts of Christianity, so-called Christianity, do, or others who demote her and make her into something that's less than what she is. For example, Jews do that. Unbelieving Jews have made Mary into a prostitute, basically. They have said that Jesus was conceived by the, uh, as an offspring of Mary and a Roman soldier by fornication. This is how it happened, that there was immorality. So we shouldn't demote her and we shouldn't promote her more than her due place. And she recognizes this. This is why she's saying generations in the future will correctly call me blessed because of the due grace of God that has been manifested in me. 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. See here she comes back to this point that it starts with the mighty one. The mighty, almighty God is the one who started this work in her. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 she knows this, and this is why she is exclaiming this and making this known to the world. This mighty God created this great miracle in her. She didn't deserve it. She didn't earn it. There was no merit on her part, no good works that cooperated with God's good works, nothing like that. It was the mighty one who has done 
great things for me. And holy is his name. God is holy in that he is unique, distinct, like no one else. He is set apart like no one else. And he has this ability and he has this desire towards his people to be merciful to them, to be gracious toward them, to show miraculous powers at work in them, in them and through them, not only to change them from darkness to light, but also to use them for his kingdom in, in ways that are far beyond what we could ask or think. God is holy in these ways. We'll also see later he's holy in terms of his attributes and his righteousness. Verse 50, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Now it seems that she is turning towards not her conversion and remembrance of her conversion, but now her consecration or her sanctification or her growth in the things of God. She says here, His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. Not only was He merciful to her, but He's also merciful to all others who fear Him. We are converted, and upon our conversion, we have the fear of God that generates within us. We hear about our sin, we hear about God's holiness, we hear about the wrath of God, that we hear about hell that awaits all those who re refuse to repent of their sins. That generates fear and right, good, godly fear in us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise, uh, beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, 7. So fear of God is necessary upon our conversion. But the fear of God also continues. And as it continues in the Christian life, we are shown more and more mercy of God and favor of God. Because God is pleased to see that His people fear Him. When His people fear Him, He blesses them. He's more merciful and more gracious to them. This happens during our sanctification, during our Christian life. Because now we are new creatures, now we have a new heart, now we have a soft and tender heart. Because of that, we are called upon, we are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to manifest good deeds, to obey God and to fear God every day in our daily life. This is why she says here that it's not only for her, but it's for everyone else who fears God to receive of the mercy of God. Verse 51. She continues to attribute all of this to God. Verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. It is the arm of God. Notice. This is a monar uh, monergistic, that is, it starts and it is only God as the cause. God is the only one at work. Monergism means only uh, one at work, meaning only God is at work to cause these things to come about in us. Why was it necessary for God's arm to do all of this on behalf of Mary and all who are like Mary? Why is it? We see a couple of references as to why this is necessary. One is found in Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, Isaiah the prophet, from the start of the chapter, he has been enumerating and listing all the sins, the common sins that we commit. And then he says in 59.15, Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. So it's a hopeless condition. It's a hopeless situation among men. Verse 15 continues, however. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing or evil in his sight, that there was no justice. There's no justice anywhere. Widespread injustice. Verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. And his righteousness upheld him. 
There was no salvation available among men. There was no righteousness available among men. They had no strength. They had no power in themselves to save themselves or anybody else. And God sees this. He's astonished by it. Not that he's surprised, but this is figurative in human terms explaining how disgusted and appalled God is. That's the purpose of this, to say that God saw, he was astonished, that no one could do it. So then God sees no one is able to do it, so God does it. He brings salvation. He brings that about. Isaiah 63, we have a similar verse. Isaiah 63, 63 and verse 5. 63:5. And I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. God saw again, he's repeating the same truth. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. What he means here, not that God needs salvation, but he's saying that the means of salvation, God brought it about because no one else could do it. No one else had the power. No one else had the strength. No one else had a strong right arm to be able to bring spiritual salvation to anyone. So God did it. No one could, so he did. And this is what Mary knows. This is what she believed. She knew those verses in Isaiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament. So she says, He has done mighty deeds with his arm, singularly, solely by his arm. Now what does God do when God intervenes, when God intercedes, when God uses his strong right arm for salvation? How does he do that? Does he bring salvation to everyone? Does he bring salvation to everyone regardless of their status, regardless of their disposition? Does he do it to the proud and and to the humble? How does God bring about salvation? Mary understands it in the following way. He scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. God is the God of ironies. What man regards, God disregards. And what God regards, he shows man that they are worthless, that they are useless, they are vain people, they are wretched people, and he turns it around. This is the irony. This is what God does throughout history. And on the day of judgment, that's what he will do. All the rulers, all the potentates and kings and authorities of the world, all the rich people of the world, who trust in their possessions, who trust in their position, and usurp authority even, and exploit other people, they will be brought down because they had no humility. They had no humility. So God will bring them down. Just like the, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was dressed. He lived in a, a daily and, and gaily every day. And he had lots of food. He had lots of people serving him. But he would not repent, and he went to hell. But Lazarus did repent, and though he was poor in this world, and though he had sores in this world, though he had no, no recognition in this world, he is in Abraham's bosom in the world to come. Luke 16. This is the way God does it. He does this throughout history. Everyone who thinks he's great, he'll, he'll humiliate. And everyone who is nothing in this world, God will exalt if they repent if they are recipients of the grace of God. And that's what she's talking about. She's talking about those who are recipients of the grace of God. Those who are nobody become somebody. That means God's out to save some people and he's out to destroy others. He's always been this way. Abel he saves, he destroys Cain. um, Isaac he saves, he destroys Ishmael. Moses he saves, he destroys Pharaoh. Uh, He saves Israel, but he destroys Edom. It goes on and on like this throughout the whole Bible. He saves the apostles, except Judas Iscariot, whom he destroys. This is the way it is throughout. Those who are exalted, he destroys, and then he uplifts those who were nobodies and exalts them because of the grace of God. He does this throughout history. So this will teach us, this should teach us, to always be humble, 
always depend on the grace of God, not to think of ourselves as better than other people, not to be condescending towards others, not to bite and criticize others, but recognize that we need to know our own station, know how God worked in us, and not to put down and beat down on others, because we may soon find ourselves to be just like them, if we are not humble and gracious in our dealings. Verse 54. This is not a novelty. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. All this that Mary is talking about, and even when she says in verse 44, he has given help to Israel, his servant, she is speaking as though that the deposit of Christ in her womb the deposit of Christ in her womb, she trusts the promises of God that they will be fulfilled because God had made promises in the past that are being fulfilled. She knows that throughout the Old Testament, the promises God made to Adam and to Noah and Abraham, to Moses and David, they were unfolding throughout the Old Testament. And she knows that in her own life, they are unfolding. And she knows that they will be fulfilled, that Jesus will die, he will rise from the dead, he will ascend into heaven, he will intercede and be there until his return, until he makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet. He will do all of that. There will be a day of judgment. And then we will be with the Lord forever and the others in the lake of fire forever. She knows all this. That's why she says, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. All that God had promised in the past, he is remembering. Now, when he remembers what she means, just as the Bible means in other places, it doesn't mean God forgot. It means that based on what he said in the past, he is now acting on that. He is now acting in this way or that way to begin to fulfill everything he has said. And ultimately, one day he will fulfill it all. That's what she means by in remembrance of his mercy. As God promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the others, that there would be a descendant of, of theirs, and also to David, specifically of the uh, line of David, that there would be a descendant who would be an eternal king. This promise that all those who put their faith in him, in the seed of the woman from Adam, to the seed of Abraham, to the seed of David, all who put their faith in him, they would experience this covenantal, this gracious salvation forever. This is what she means. This is what she knows. And she's celebrating this fact. Then 56 says, And Mary stayed with her about three months, stayed with Elizabeth, and then returned to her home. She stays with Elizabeth because Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Presumably, she stays with Elizabeth until John the Baptist is born so she sees with her own eyes the, the fulfillment of God's promise to give this prodigy John the Baptist because Zacharias and Elizabeth were advanced in, in age and they had no children even in their early years they had no children she sees this miracle occur and it encourages her this is why she stays there she stays there for her own benefit for her own uh, encouragement to persevere and continue in the faith because during her pregnancy the people of the world are going to look those unbelievers and they're going to mock and ridicule her because she's not married yet she's engaged to be married but she's not married yet and they're going to accuse her and slander her of sin this is what is going to happen to her yet she is gaining comfort and consolation to persevere in faith by witnessing the birth of John the Baptist. Now, what happens when he's born? Verses 57 to 66 explain. 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth a son. Just as God had promised through the angel Gabriel in the earlier verses, so it happened. What was announced is now recorded. It happened. And verse 58, And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were, they were rejoicing with her. God had displayed His great mercy toward her. 
Yes, it was an answer to their prayers, Zacharias and Elizabeth's prayers, but it was unmerited favor. It was God's great mercy that came upon her. Now, the people, some of the people who used to malign her and slander her, in verse 25, chapter 1, verse 25, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. At one point, and for a long time, the men used to impugn her and slander her for having some sin or some problem as to the reason for her barrenness. But now, God has turned it around. This is the irony of God again. He shuts the mouths of men and turns them into praise. He turns the wrath of men into praise. And this is what is happening here in verse 58. God displays great mercy and they were rejoicing with her. 59, and it came about that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. We notice in verse 59, 58 and 59, that the plural is used. It's not only Elizabeth there, or even Mary there, but others are there. Because it was the practice among the Jews that on the eighth day, according to the command of God uh, in Genesis chapter 17, according to the command of God, that on the eighth day every male should be circumcised. So they are practicing it according to the command of God, but they also have witnesses. Outside of the Bible, it explains that the practice was to have at least 10 witnesses there on the day of circumcision, on the eighth day of circumcision. So these witnesses are there to name the child, as was the custom as well, probably also because when Abraham was told about circumcision in Genesis 17, God also changed his name. And Abraham also was circumcised, and then he also circumcised Ishmael, and the, the servants in his household all at that time. So just as Abraham, when he was circumcised, had a new name, here presumably they are practicing something like that, that is naming the child on the eighth day as was the, their practice. So they do so on the eighth day and they want to call him Zacharias after his father. It's typical of many people to name sons and daughters after their ancestors because they are fond of their ancestors, this or that ancestor, or because not only because they are fond of them because of their virtue, but also perhaps because the name is known and the meaning of the name is, uh, is known and they like that meaning or they like the characteristics of their ancestor. Whatever the case, it is a custom among many peoples to do so. And among the Jews, of course, they have the additional benefit in remembering the goodness of God, in remembering the promises of God, the covenant of God. So naturally they want to name the son after Zacharias. However, they forgot or did not know or both that Gabriel said the name should be John. Verse 60. But Elizabeth remembered and Elizabeth spoke up. And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. This shows that what Zacharias experienced in the temple, which he himself only saw, he taught and commanded Elizabeth outside of the temple. He taught her and, sh and showed her what exactly should be done, even though temporarily he didn't believe the promise and he was struck with muteness. Because he was mute, he had to convey it in writing to Elizabeth, and he did so. What Adam didn't do properly with Eve to teach her, Zacharias does properly to Zac uh, Elizabeth to teach her. And then Elizabeth, she speaks up and she says, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. There's a bit of a squabble or dispute there. Verse 61, And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. They're trying to bring a division between Zacharias and Elizabeth. So they say, hey, Zacharias, what do you want? They're making signs to him because he cannot communicate. So then, verse 63, and he asked for a tablet. 
a writing tablet. He asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. He, <coughs> he settles the matter. The father and the mother agree his name is John. And they were all astonished. God ordained for this astonishment to occur because one thing after another, through John, God is showing the people that this John is a special John. He is a special, he will be a special prophet. From the womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he leaped in the womb for joy. So he was special from the announcement, special from the conception, and now he will be special at his birth. He will be special in his ministry because he is unique. And Jesus said that he is the greatest of all the prophets. He is the greatest of all the prophets because he is the forerunner of Christ. The forerunner of Christ. So the people get further astonishment. Verse 64. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. This shows to the people that what Zacharias said that happened to him in the temple was indeed true. So the people now have a vindication or a verification that Zacharias was telling the truth about everything. They, some of the people might have had doubts about what really happened and all that, but now they cannot have it anymore. How could it be that suddenly, once he says his name is John, that suddenly he, now he's able to talk? He's able to talk because... This was according to the punishment, temporary punishment that he had to experience for nine months not being able to talk. But now he is, and what does he do the moment he can talk? He doesn't doubt. He doesn't gripe. He praises God. He pra this, this is what should happen. This is what Mary did. The, when, when Mary, in, in the previous verses, Mary suddenly she bursts out in praise and in God and, and rejoices in God and the same here with Zacharias. Whenever we are mindful of the grace of God, it should drive us to praise God. Grace should drive us to praise God. That's what true humility does. Verse 65, And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. The people all around have the fear of God come upon them. This is good. This is good. Sometimes miracles have to occur for the fear of God to arouse in people. Because we are often dull and insensitive. We're often spiritually dull and insensitive. So we need a miracle to occur or something astonishing to occur to jolt us and to awaken us from our stupor. We need that. And what does it produce? It produces fear. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira sinned against the Lord by lying? What happened to each of them suddenly? They suddenly died. And both times, when husband and wife died, both times it said, and fear came upon the church. Fear came upon all those who heard. Great fear came upon them all because of this miracle they suddenly had the fear of God in them. This is what God desires. All godly people of all ages have the fear of God in them. They want to honor the things of God, do the things of God. They understand He's holy and they understand His wrath. They understand it all. So they fear Him. Not only do they fear Him, but they talk about Him. They talk about what He's done. This characterizes the people of God as well. Those who have true fear will talk about the things of God. They will talk about what these things mean. They like to talk about it. They love to talk about it. They love to be around other people who want to hear about it. This is happening throughout the hill country of Judea. So that when he is born, verse 66 further says, they keep it all in mind. They remember it. They're curious. What is actually going to happen when John the Baptist is born? Because we know the hand of the Lord, that is the power of God, was certainly with him. God is certainly using him, but what will it all be about? This is what God desires. Not just for the nine months 
or, or for the temporary time that John the Baptist is born and then he becomes an adult and begins to minister in the deserts and in the wilderness of Judea, not just during his short lifespan, but God wants this kind of pondering, this kind of meditation, this kind of thinking and remembrance to be in all of us, not just for a short time, but all the time. Think about what God has done, who He is, what He has said, what He promises, what He's already done in our life, what He will do in our life. Pray to Him, praise Him, talk about Him. This is what He wants. And that's what He produced here. Verse 67. Verse 67. Now we read about Zacharias. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Now that he's able to speak, what does he say? 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Notice here. The father of John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a confirmation that what he's saying, if we had any doubts, that what he's saying is actually from God. Sometimes we need this further confirmation because the human heart is prone to skepticism. It's prone to doubt and, and critical thoughts and judgments towards the things of God. So here we have a confirmation that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So what he's about to say is true. It's coming from God the Holy Spirit. So we ought to believe it. And it's also a prophecy. This is often, it goes hand in hand. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Holy Spirit is the one who should not be quenched and we should not despise prophetic utterances. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 The Holy Spirit and prophecy go hand in hand. Prophets don't speak on their own initiative and the Holy Spirit does not speak in a vacuum. He is pleased to use as a means holy prophets to announce his word. And at this point, Zacharias has a holy word from God. A word of clarification too. Verse 67. Because Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit with this special prophecy, it does not mean Zacharias was devoid of the Holy Spirit before this. And it does not mean that all the people before this point were devoid of the Holy Spirit, or all the people before the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 were devoid of the Holy Spirit. No, all true believers from Adam until the end of the world are regenerated by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. They have hard hearts changed into new hearts, into tender hearts, hard into soft hearts, or old, crusty, worthless people are changed into new creations in Christ Jesus. We who were nothing become something because of the grace of the Holy Spirit of grace. This is what is true throughout the Bible. And Zacharias already had this, but now he has a special favor of the Holy Spirit to prophesy these words. Verse 68. And what does he do? Similar to Mary, he does the following. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He praises God, blessing him. When the word bless, uh, to bless or blessed is used, it is when it's us to God, we are praising God. When it's God towards us, he's bestowing his gifts to us. So we call, say that we are blessed because he has bestowed gifts to us. But in this case, Zacharias praises God, just as Mary did in chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. She praised God and rejoiced in God. He does the same. And he calls God the Lord God of Israel. The sovereign Lord is the God of Israel. He identifies him as the God of Israel because it was through Israel, or Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God made these promises. So God made these promises long ago. And in the case of Zacharias, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was 2,000 years before Zacharias lived. Or 4,000 years before we lived. He made these promises long ago. Although he made these promises long ago to Israel, favoring Jacob or Israel, he also favors us 
And we are incorporated in that true faith that Israel had. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Here too, Zacharias speaks of it having already been accomplished because he knows the promises of God. And the moment we trust the promises of God, we know it's a firm deal. It's a done deal. It will happen. Because God said it, we can speak of it in the past tense. This is the way the prophets speak. They speak of future things in the past tense because it is confirmed. It will happen. God has visited us and accomplished redemption. Often the Bible speaks of God visiting because for a long time He has been absent in the sense that they don't see obvious manifestations of His grace. They don't see Him working. After all, they're living in the time of the Romans. Who wants to be controlled and enslaved to the Romans who are pagans, who have no desire for the things of God? And after all, their leaders, the Jewish authorities, they are wicked people. They're, they are in it for their own fame and fortune. They don't care about the people. They don't love the people. So they have religion in disarray. They have religion that is in upheaval because nobody, relatively speaking, nobody cares about the things of God. So now, in the midst of this dark time, God desires to manifest himself by having John the Baptist born and be the forerunner of Christ, about to be born. And this is the way in which God has visited them and accomplished redemption. He does it for us, his people. 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. A horn of salvation. The horn, the horn of the, of the animal is a symbol of strength because it is the male animal with the horn that uses the horn to make his way here or there and to prove his superiority among other males or between males and females among the animals, like the goats. When they have these horns, they fight each other to prove who is the strongest. So that becomes a symbol in the Bible of Christ, who is the most powerful. He is the most powerful, and His power brings about salvation for us. Zacharias, just like Mary, understands salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.10 Salvation is of the Lord. And also that we love because He first loved us. He understands that it is the love and mercy of God that brings about salvation for us. But it is through the house of David and David his servant. Now David, though he was a mighty king and though God bestowed much grace upon him and he did do many wonderful things. He wrote much of Scripture he was a godly man. He had lots of faith. And God made promises to him. He made promises, though, regarding his descendant. David was no savior of the world. David also had the grace of God in his life. We know he was a sinner before his conversion. And even after his conversion, he committed a couple of great sins. So he was a sinner. And salvation would not consist in David himself but in David's descendant. Only the seed of David, the offspring of David, the distant descendant of David, Christ, could offer salvation. Zacharias knew this. And this is why he is talking about the horn of salvation in the house of David. Not David, but David's descendant. Prophesied many, many years ago, repeatedly, would bring about salvation. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zacharias knows that from Genesis to Malachi, throughout all the Old Testament, that the holy prophets were the ones who announced this. He knows this. This is not, in other words, a novelty. This is not an invention of Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, and some figment uh, so to speak, so, some figment that happened in the temple. Oh, no, 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 you, you were crazy, or something happened to you, 
you hit your head against the wall and you just were dizzy and that's what happened to you in the temple and no angel Gabriel appeared to you nothing like that happened and all these things you're saying and all these things that John the Baptist is about to say no no these are new nobody ever taught this nobody ever believed this no he strips that away Zechariah says as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old God spoke of this many many years ago he said that this would happen and now it's happening and it will continue to happen until the Lord returns. It's all through the Old Testament. What does it consist of? It consists of salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Yes, we need salvation from our enemies. Who are our enemies? Well, we have three major enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. And it only is the grace of God that makes us alive together with Christ. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, these are our enemies. And ultimately, what is produced by these three enemies? Death. So death becomes, in a sense, our enemy. And this is why the scriptures speak of our need to be delivered from the world, from our own flesh, from the devil, and also from the ultimate enemy, the last enemy that will be vanquished will be death. That will happen. But who brings this about? The offspring of David. Jesus does. But he also calls it here from the hand of all who hate us. Our enemies loathe us. They hate us. They actually despise us. What they do with their great power that we are unable to overcome God is able to change that and transform it so that we have the love of God that overcomes the hatred of all our enemies. Verse 72, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Here also in verse 72 we see, he says, to show mercy toward our fathers. Wait a minute. This implies that the fathers, Abraham and all the others, that they were dependent on this future mercy. They looked ahead to see this future mercy manifested in the death and resurrection of Christ and applied to them in advance of that death and resurrection. Here he says, to show mercy toward our fathers. He's not going to show mercy towards them after they're dead. He's showing mercy towards them before they're dead and by granting them faith in the coming of Christ. Because this is done by covenant. This is done by the oath that he swore. The holy covenant, the covenant of grace, this covenant that God announced early in the book of Genesis, it's repeated in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, this holy covenant, this covenant that comes from a holy God that makes unholy people holy, this holy covenant is what Abraham enjoyed and all successive generations to be delivered from the hand of our enemies. And also he calls it the oath. The covenant is also the oath. Why is it an oath also? Again, because we, when we hear something, we, we are prone to doubt. We're prone to thinking, really? Do you really mean it? Is it really going to happen? But God, time and again, swears. Not in profanity, but swearing in terms of making an oath, making a solemn vow. God swears or makes an oath, and when He does so, He's heightening the fact that he's actually going to do it. Do not doubt him. It will happen. And when he does so, he swears by himself, as Hebrews chapter 6 says, because there's no one greater than him. So he swears by himself, and he says, I'm going to do it. You can trust what I say. So just as he gave them encouragement in their faith to trust the promises of God, he gives it to us with the result that we serve him without fear. Remember what Adam and Eve did because of their sin and guilt? They fled. They hid. 
And they were afraid. And they even said, because we were afraid of you, because we heard the sound of you walking in the garden. So, people who have terror and fear of God in an unbiblical way do so because they don't know the grace of God. They don't know the love of God. They don't know the mercy of God. And the religions of the world, and even the false manifestations of it within Christianity, the religions of the world and the false manifestations within Christianity all have this horrible kind of fear, this ungodly kind of fear towards God because they don't understand the mercy of God. They don't understand the grace of God. They want to run away from God or do whatever is in their earthly, uh, uh, fleshly power to do what they think is right before God so that they can earn His favor, so that they can go to heaven, so that they can not have the terror of God frighten them day and night. This is what people do. But here, when we truly come to know God, we don't have this unwholesome, unsound fear that we used to have. We have the healthy fear of God now to desire to love Him and obey Him. And it produces in us holiness, verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Holiness and righteousness, this is what is produced because we have the proper kind of worship and service of God from our conversion to our coffin, from the time that we believe until the time that we are buried. We have this holiness and righteousness. We have a new desire to follow God all our days. Now he turns his attention to John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, which, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias, based on chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, what Gabriel told Zacharias, he now is acknowledging that his son will be called the prophet of the Most High and he will prepare the way, uh, you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. He will go as a spokesman to tell the people to repent of sins and to bring people to reconciliation before Jesus actually appears. We know that this actually occurred in Luke chapter 3. He's preaching to multitudes of people, calling on them to repent. And some of them do repent. Not all of them, because he calls them brood of vipers and tells them not to pretend with their religion. So some of them did repent and they were prepared to meet the Lord and to follow Him because there would be a time when John the Baptist would have an untimely death in that he did not live to, to be 70 or 80 years old. He would be executed. He would be beheaded. And then the people would, would have to follow Christ during that time. So in that way, he was preparing people for the Lord, turning the hearts of the fathers towards their sons, turning the hearts of the sons to their fathers, the attitude of the disobedient to the righteous, so that he might bring reconciliation among believers within families even. This is what he was called to do. And he did so. Zacharias knows. And 77. He says, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Salvation consists in the forgiveness of sins. If there is no forgiveness, there is no salvation. This is why repentance for forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Luke 24, 46 and 47, Jesus said. We must preach repentance from sins, otherwise there's no salvation. Any gospel that's preached without a call to repentance for forgiveness of sins is a false gospel. It's a half gospel. It's the gospel of the false prophets who say peace and safety when there is no peace and safety. That's the reason that forgiveness occurs because repentance occurs. So that's why repentance must be proclaimed. And in this repentance, we speak of the tender mercy of our God. Yes, there is mercy available, but it does not come automatically. It comes on the basis of repentance. God will be merciful, and it's tender mercy. 
tender mercy for his people. And who will bring this about? Who will it be based on? Verse 78, the sunrise from on high shall visit us. The sunrise is the sun of righteousness. Sun in S-U-N, that sun, the sun that's in the sky. That sun, the sunrise, that spelling is a metaphor for Christ based on Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Christ is the light of the world. He is the sun of righteousness. He's the sunrise from on high. He's the morning star. He, uh, as it says in First Peter or Second Second Peter chapter one, verses sixteen to twenty-one, this is who he is. He is the dawn. He is what we need. He is the one who brings people who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He brings them out of darkness and death into light and life. Christ and only Christ does this. Colossians one thirteen and fourteen. Colossians one thirteen and fourteen describes this truth. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of sins comes only in Christ, who brings people from darkness to light. This also means we need to preach that people are in darkness and that people have the sentence of death on their head. We have to preach it. If we don't preach it, how will they know so that they can be transferred from darkness to light, from death to life? How can they know it unless we teach it? He also guides our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace. We have alienation and hostility between us and God. This is another thing we have to preach in a true gospel, that there is animosity and conflict. There is warfare between God and us, unless we are reconciled to Him in His Son. When we are reconciled in His Son, then there's peace between man and God. And then peace begins to manifest itself between one another. Like it says in Luke 1, 16 and 17, between Father and Son, Son and Father, and also between those others among us in our society where we, there was enmity, there is now peace and reconciliation. The only way of true peace is in Christ. Peace between man and God, the only mediator is Christ, and also between one another, the only mediator is Christ. Verse 80. But this will not happen automatically. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He grows, he's strong in spirit. He has to grow and be built up in the faith. The Holy Spirit has to teach him. He needs to read and study the scriptures. This has to happen. Even with the prophet John the Baptist, the holy prophet John the Baptist, it had to happen with him. So he needed that spiritual training in growth. But he also needed it in terms of being in the deserts until his public appearance. Moses had to live in the desert for 40 years before he was exalted and appointed and called by God to lead the people out of Egypt. Did he not? Elijah also had to be driven into the wilderness and then he was delivered out of the wilderness. 1 Kings chapter 19. The people of Israel had to be driven into the wilderness before they had the land of Canaan, before they inherited the land of Canaan. They had to be taught humility and suffering before exaltation. And even Jesus did so. He didn't need to do so, but he did so as our example. And in order to fulfill everything that was written in the law, he himself, before his ministry, had to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before he was delivered from that and proclaimed the gospel freely in other places. He had to eat nothing until he could eat something. This is the way it is. And this is the way of the Christian life. This humility comes before exaltation. This is the way God does it. He tells us and shows us tokens of this throughout life and through many people in the Bible. He does that to us. Humility before exaltation. And in the same way, all of this symbolizes that in this life, we have afflictions 
that come upon us, mm -hmm. but we will be exalted, and there will be no crying, no mourning, no tears, no more death. We will have God with us, our redemption will be fully completed, and then we will be with our Lord forever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father, we ask you to help us to understand from these truths that uh, the mighty gospel is one, that you have announced it from beginning to end in the Bible, and that it is our only means of salvation. Help us and help our loved ones not to trust in anything else. May we only trust in Christ for our salvation. Keep us humble and humble those who are proud and exalt us in due time. In Christ's name, amen.